is up, everybody? Welcome into episode 22 of I'll Say This with Chris Castellani. I am your host, Chris Castellani. We have a really good show uh, lined up for you today. No guests today, uh, though we are going to continue to feature guests sporadically throughout the summer and, and beyond. Appreciate the job Scott Bentley did on Monday when he was on this program and obviously appreciate the job Anthony Broom did when he was on this show, what was it, a week and a half, almost two weeks ago at this point. But a lot of content to cover and I'm really excited to talk about this and a lot of people probably think that I'm going to start by talking about the Tigers, the Red Hot, the Detroit Tigers, a team that just won four out of five games against the first place Minnesota Twins, but that's not going to be the case. I'm going to start with Michigan basketball news because this is something, unsurprisingly, that I'm extremely passionate about, and it's it's a running theme from previous episodes where I've talked about this, and, and that's where we're going to start. Musa Diabate and Caleb Houston, two former five-star recruits for Juwan Howard's program, have both elected not just to test the NBA waters, but to stay in the NBA draft. They are now officially one and done. They will not be on Juwan Howard's roster next season, and I have a lot to say about this. And I'm going to do a mini rant, but there's also going to be some nuance here. And before I really get into it, because I know how this works, there's going to be pe- going to be people who are going to say that I am bitter Michigan fan. I am a guy who is upset simply because I wanted these guys to come back to school. And uh, yeah, there's an element to that. Of course there is. I don't think you're a bad person for feeling that way. It's the same way with Michigan State people who are like, oh my God, I can't believe Max Christie's going pro. Like, he would have been one of your better players. You're not inhuman to want those guys to come back to school. So, yeah, I mean, like, I would have preferred they came back to to Michigan the same way I would have preferred that Nick Stauskas, Trey Burke, Tim Hardaway, Glenn Robinson III, all those guys came back to Michigan because I know they would have made Michigan's team better this season. So there is a, a tiny bit of bitterness. With that said, when Trey Burke and all those guys I just mentioned went pro, I never really batted an eyelash. I got it. Glenn Robinson was probably one where I'm like, "Eh, I don't know if he's ready, but you know what? He did go on to play in the NBA. He was a journeyman, you know, not as good as he probably could have been had he have stayed another year. But, you know, he made made his money, right? Which I get is is the goal, apparently, uh, nowadays. So, yeah, there is a little bit of bitterness. And I'm going to start with this little mini rant, and then I'm going to add a little bit more subtext and nuance. The mini rant is this. I believe both of these guys are making a mistake. I think the idea that these two guys who are mediocre to a slightly above average college basketball players going pro after one year is a reflection of the fact that we exist in a completely broken system in which we not only analyze college basketball players as basketball players, we more so analyze them as athletes. These are two guys who, in my experience watching them during this season, showed no signs of being two people who would exist on an NBA roster at all over the next several seasons. I think that this is a reflection of the fact that we absolutely need to change the rule and allow guys to go straight from high school to the NBA. And if they want to play in college, they're welcome to play in college. I think guys playing in college would make the product better, but we need to have some sort of timetable in which they have to stay at least two years. If they want to go pro after high school, so be it. I think the system is completely and utterly broken and it's ruining the product, not just in college basketball. I believe it's hurting the product in the National Basketball Association. Okay, end of rant. Time to relax. 
and, and give a little bit more context here. Because I do think, this, and this happens often, when you have two five-star recruits, two guys who played at the same program, we have a tendency to lump them together a little bit. The same thing happens in baseball, where we lump Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green in together as if they're conjoined at the hip, as if they're two guys who have uh, similar skill sets. And outside of being two players who I think are going to be excellent hitters at the major league level, they're completely different players. They have different bodies, different athleticism. One plays first base, one plays the outfield. I think many people are desperate for the idea that they're going to come up together, develop together, uh, succeed together, fail together. Uh, That's not always the case. So I'm going to break it up individually here, and I'm going to start with Musa Diabate. With Musa, I get that a little bit more. Musa has tremendous athleticism, which while I just kind of ranted about the fact that we evaluate athletes as opposed to basketball players, uh, uh, athleticism does matter. Guy's got a huge wingspan, guy can jump through the gym, has good moves in the low post offensively. When he wants to be, I think he can be a tremendous uh, defensive player as well. I see the intangibles. I also see, as somebody who watched every second of Michigan's basketball season a year ago, a guy with tremendous flaws. I see a guy who I don't think right now is really capable in a competitive game of making a shot outside of 10 feet away from the basket. I see a guy with no semblance of a three-point jump shot. I see a guy who's not very good at creating off the bounce. And I think that one of the harshest things and one of the most unfair things that somebody can say about an upcoming professional athlete is character issues. Because that's nonsense. Musa Diabate is what, 19? Of course he has character issues. I'm 26, I have character issues. With that said, this is a guy who, in his spare time, liked to play rock'em sock'em robots with his fists in handshake lines a season ago, and the NBA is a league that is known for mental toughness and a whole lot of trash talk. Bird did it, Jordan did it, Kobe was like the king of that, obviously. So when this guy goes up against Draymond Green, in a game next season or two seasons from now in the NBA, I feel like his brain is going to be put into a pretzel. Now, that's my opinion. Subject to change. We'll see. Before I go any further, I should have opened with this earlier. I hope and wish for the best for both of these young men. I think it is completely silly and ludicrous to wish the worst. I don't wish injuries upon them. I hope that they succeed. They are betting on themselves. And you know what? If they turn out to be... You know, the equivalent of what Jordan Poole has become with the Warriors, these stud players. I will be the first to come on here and say, you know what, I was wrong. And I don't think there is a person in media who has been more consistent with that uh, since he started creating content. A recent example, Joey Hauser for Michigan State. For two years, I had Michigan State people saying, oh, Izzo loves Hauser. This guy's unlike any player Izzo has seen. And for two years, this guy was an oaf on the basketball court. And you know what he did against Davidson in the NCAA tournament this year? That guy balled out, played the game of his life. He's coming back next season. And not only is he coming back, my prediction is I think he's going to have an excellent season. That's a guy who proved me wrong and I believe will continue to prove me wrong. So if these guys succeed, I'll be the first uh, to eat crow and happily eat crow. So that's Musa. That's Musa who I think the intangibles are there. I think there are substantial flaws But in an era in which one of the best players in basketball, and truly probably one of the best basketball players of all time, is a scrawny kid from Greece who ended up becoming a two-time MVP and a finals MVP in in Giannis for the Bucs, 
I think I can see someone taking Musa Diabate in the draft and saying, we can turn this guy into a project and he can be special. I understand that. Caleb, quite frankly, I don't get. I think Caleb has one good attribute. He's a good set shooter. Well, let me amend that. He's a good set shooter at Chrysler Center. Outside of that, he was incredibly subpar everywhere else. He had a nice little game in the first game of the tournament against Colorado State. After that, Michigan won the game against Tennessee in spite of him. He averaged six points a game in three tournament games last season. Yes, he's a good set shooter sometimes, but when I think of like good set shooters, I think of, you know, and I think of Michigan guys, I think of Jordan Poole. I think of Nick Stauskas. This guy went away. He's not a very good defender, at least based on what I saw. He has Essentially, based on, again, based on my analysis, and I'm not saying my analysis is is factual, uh, he has zero ability to create off the dribble. I've heard people say, oh, well, Caleb Houston, he's got an NBA body. Does he? I've watched the NBA playoffs. These guys are built like absolute tanks. Caleb Houston has a long way to go before he's got an NBA body. And I I, I know I'm, I'm being really harsh right now, and, and I'm using these guys as examples. Because I simply believe the system as a whole is completely ridiculous. Like, why do we even have this current system in place if this is what it's going to be? What's the point of having a top three, or in Jawan Howard's case, a top one recruiting class if guys are just going to play average to slightly above average basketball and then leave after one year? I don't get it. I don't see it. I hope they succeed. I hope they prove me wrong. But even if they do, let's say both of these guys are starting the All-Star game two, three, four years from now. Their college careers were still a disappointment. When they were recruited, I was under the belief that these were going to be two guys that were going to get Michigan to a Final Four. They were the third and fourth, fourth or fifth best players on a team that snuck in you know, by, by the hair of their nuts into the tournament last year, had a pretty good draw, won two games, and made it to the Sweet 16. Neither one of them played that well in, in postseason play. They went long stretches where they kind of just went away. That team made the Sweet 16 because Hunter Dickinson was the best player on the floor, and Eli Brooks played really well uh, in, in the first two tournament games. And you got Frankie Collins, who's also now no longer a part of the program, who was excellent in the first round of the tournament against Colorado State when Devontae Jones was injured. I wish them all the best. I hope that they are successful. They are betting on themselves. And any person, and this is coming from someone who's done this, any person who is willing to chase their dreams and bet on themselves, to me, is is a hero. I don't want bad things to happen. I really, I really hope that they succeed and prove me wrong. But I am also a fan. I make no bones about the fact that I am a fan of Michigan basketball, and I try to be as objective as possible. And outside of Musa's game against UNLV, which was like after Thanksgiving, and his game at uh, Carver-Hawkeye Arena against Iowa, I, I, I didn't see NBA players here. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong good for them. They're betting on themselves, but I got to be objective and call it the way I see it. Um, I don't believe that either one of these guys have NBA all-star potential. Now, if their goal is to bounce back and forth from the G League and, and sit on the, the end of the bench for the next four or five years, then they're probably going to be fine. I just, I think when you talk about two guys who were five-star recruits, I mean, Caleb Houston was what, like the fifth ranked player in the country? I think that uh, you, you could have done more with them. And as much as I like Juwan, 
if these guys succeed, if they become studs, if Caleb Houston becomes somebody who's uh, creating off the dribble and slashing and kicking it out and being able to score at will, there does come a point in which you will have to wonder about Juwan's ability to develop players. I love and worship the ground that John Beeline walks on. At the same time, I feel like Jordan Poole was remarkably underused during his time at Michigan. Now, everybody else, Burke, Stauskas, Hardaway, he got the most out of. Some players fall through the cracks. That may be the case with these two guys. Maybe they were simply better than the team around them and Juwan underutilized them. That is a theory. That is like a complete possibility. Nothing but good wishes. It's just my opinion. And before anyone gets on me for just criticizing two guys who I hoped would return to the program that I root for, I feel the same way about Max Christie at Michigan State. I think that is an asinine decision. Max Christie played like three good games last year. I feel bad for Tom Izzo. I feel bad for that program. I think we're devaluing college basketball as a whole when you have guys who walk on campus with the intention of just going to the NBA the next year. It's why, I, quite frankly, I know that he's kind of a villain around East Lansing. I get it. It's why I appreciate the Hunter Dickinsons of the world. Like, the self-awareness to be like, hey, look, I love playing in college, and I think I'm a good player, but I have more to prove here. I like that. And, and, and Tom Izzo has been the master of that with guys like Draymond Green and Cassius Winston, guys who are program guys who play three, four years in college. And some of them succeed in the NBA. Some of them don't, but... The product as a whole for college basketball, I think, is lesser than it used to be because guys aren't committing so much to a system as much as they're committing to themselves. And, dude, there's a place for that. If I was in either one of these guys' positions, I'd do the exact same thing. You know, these, these are, are kids coming out of high school. I want to I secure the bag. I want to make money. I want to play in the NBA. But as somebody who's just a fan of college basketball as an entity, yeah, it's, an, it's annoying to me. All right, we are going to move on here to the Tigers, who are playing some pretty good baseball now. This is a team that has won seven out of nine games. They are about to go on the road uh, against the New York Yankees, who, as of right now, have the best record in baseball. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Starting pitching does not line up for them to be successful, but at the same time, it hasn't really for most of the year with the amount of injuries they've had. Look, the team is playing better. They look more like an actual baseball team. They're making throws to first base. Pitching has not not been the issue uh, at all uh, up to this point, but the offense is coming alive a little bit. Yesterday, you had a wonderful game in which you got five you know solid enough innings out of Alex Fajardo. The bullpen shut it down. You had Daz Cameron, of all people, two-run home run in the bottom of the eighth to put the Tigers in front. Gregory Soto closed it down. I've said a million times, but it feels like the gears are starting to turn a little bit here, which does admittedly make me happy. There's still nine games under 500. And I just wanted to pose this question to the fans. I'm going to pose multiple questions uh, to the fans here. But the one I wanted to pose is, right now, look, you're nine games under. You play in what is really the worst division in baseball right now. I mean, I don't think there's a great team in this division. The Twins are in first place. I can't believe how bad the White Sox look. The White Sox should be running away with this, and I know they've had a lot of injuries, but there's no reason why that offense should be that bad, and yet they continue to be. The Tigers, I believe, are currently eight games out of first place, and I've been thinking at this point, 51 games in, we are post-Memorial Day, what does success look like for the Detroit Tigers? A season ago, you were 77 and 85. 
You played pretty darn good baseball the last four months of the season. This year, my analysis was, I just want you to be better than you were a season ago. Now, that came with the caveat of, you're not going to start the year looking like a double-A team. You're not going to go a 19-game stretch in which you score 31 runs. You're not going to have the worst offense in baseball. I mean, my, my hope, all I wanted was that by July August, we'd be playing meaningful baseball. That I don't believe that's going to be the case. They're too far underwater. Now, they are pitching their butts off. I've gone off about it a million times. I think Chris Fetter is just doing an exceptional job. And the one bit of hope, this is where we're going to have some optimism. One of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball pitches for the Detroit Tigers, and that's Tarek Skubal. This is a story. As I brought up a minute ago, We are post-Memorial Day. Now, there are exceptions. I've brought it up before. Yes, the Nationals were 19-31 and and won the World Series in 2019. Yes, the Royals in 2014, I think, were 50-51 and and came within one game of winning the World Series. And if not for Madison Bumgarner, they would have won it. They ended up winning it uh, the next season. But in general, Memorial Day is right around the time when stories become legitimate. Guys who are putting up big numbers... You are people you start to look at and be like, oh, this guy might be for real. Well, Tarek Skubal is absolutely for real. Tarek Skubal is the ace that the Tigers have kind of built this rebuild around. Now, ideally, at this point, you would have Skubal looking like the ace, Manning looking like a really good number two, and Mize looking like a really good number three. That is not going to be the case because two of those guys are injured, but yet in a pitching staff that has been completely depleted and completely decimated by injuries— Every fifth day, you have a guy who is taking the mound and just shoving. And he's in his second full year of work. He's going to take his lumps. I bet in the second half, he's going to wear down. But right now, it is very apparent that this guy has a special arm. And I think, as I said in my postgame video the other night, him and Chris Fetter are a match made in heaven. And Jason Beck and Cody Stavenhagen. I mean, there's a lot of great beat writers for the Tigers. But those two guys specifically have kind of broken down Scooby's pitch selection. And it's very clear that he is simply a smarter pitcher than he was a season ago. I believe that in the minor leagues, if you got a heater that reaches the upper 90s, which Scooballs can do, you can beat guys with fastballs. Last year, Scooball was a guy who I believe threw 60% fastballs. Right now, it's like in the 20s. He is mixing in that slider, which he's throwing at 94, 95 miles per hour. In the first inning in his last start, he threw a slider at 95 miles per hour. Like, that's, that's Jacob deGrom. The caliber right there. The changeup was working for him. His other game, that that curveball is still a work in progress, but when that's your like fourth, fifth best pitch, you're you're done pretty good. He is exceptional. I also think as good as he's looked and as improved as the team has been over the last week plus, I think that Tarek Skubal is a really good lesson for the Detroit Tigers because the Tigers have sold us this bill of goods over the last several years, which is we're going to suck and we're going to build through the draft and we're going to get top five picks and these top five picks, we're going to hit with all of them. And it is still early in the game. I will let you know when I've given up on Mize, not doing it. I will let you know when I've given up on Manning, not doing it. Torque looks better lately. Riley Green hasn't played a major league game. You know, that's an incomplete grade. And saying that it's an incomplete grade is kind of unfair because that's that almost uh, implies some sort of negative connotation. He's going to be here soon. And I think he's going to play some good baseball. But there is a sad irony to the fact that this team that sucked on purpose for four years in the hopes of hoarding top five draft picks, that the best player thus far that has come out of that 
was a ninth-round pick out of Seattle University, who I believe when the Tigers drafted him was two years removed from Tommy John surgery. When Scott Bentley was on Monday, he made a great point, which is that teams that know what they're doing get guys in the 8th, ninth, 10th, 20th rounds who end up becoming stars. You know, how many years did the Dodgers tank? You know, and yet they have the best farm system in baseball pretty much every single season. Now, we are going to focus on the positive, though. The offense is starting to come alive here. Scooball, I believe, is one of the 10 best pitchers in baseball. And Scooball's ERA is better than Justin Verlander at this point. Do I think that'll stick? No, I don't. But for the time being, you got to enjoy it. The old adage is obviously you can't win the pennant in April, but you can sure as hell lose it. I think expectations for this team were not the pennant. Expectations for this team were competence. We're not going to get a playoff team this year. Unless there is some historic one-in-a-million 2019 Nationals kind of turnaround, we're not going to get a playoff team this season. I think, given the way things are right now with this team that is nine games under 500, that in fairness has been absolutely riddled with injuries to the pitching staff. Your goal by the end of the season, if you are 500, calling a team six years into a rebuild that finishes 500 a success is tough, but I'll view it as salvageable. And they got a long ways to go. And they look, they got to go on the road to the Bronx to play the best team in baseball. And they got some good teams coming up. They got Toronto coming up. You know, I, I just brought up how, the, how bad the White Sox are, but they're still incredibly competent and always play the Tigers tough. You got more games against the Twins. But this is the first time, really, since the opening series against the White Sox, really opening day when Javi had the walk off, where I've said, all right, I, I feel like we might finally have something here. And while that's not going to appeal to the average fan necessarily, to the diehards, I do think that is a step in the right direction. All right, this is going to be the last segment here, and I really did want to talk about this because yesterday, I'm recording this on the second, but by the time you're listening to this, it'll be the third. Yesterday was the 12-year anniversary of Armando Galarraga's perfectly imperfect game. You know the story, 27th out wasn't out that wasn't, (laughs) that sounds kind of weird to say, but Jim Joyce Call the runner safe when he wasn't. Ruined Galarraga's perfect game. He got the next guy out, and it's kind of remembered nowadays as the first 28-out perfect game in the history of Major League Baseball. It is amazing to me, 12 years later, how angry people still are. Now, don't get me wrong. I It, it makes me sad. It doesn't really make me angry anymore. People were posting clips of it, that, that, you know, that final play, the final out that wasn't. It just makes me sad. Every time I see Galarraga throw his arms up in the air only to look over at Jim Joyce and see that the runner was called safe, it makes me sad. The people are angrier about Armando Galarraga's perfect game than they are about the playoff runs in like 12, 13, 14. That's kind of surprising to me, but I do get it. It was a moment that should have never happened. It did, and it was it was incredibly sad. It was a, it was a tragic moment in Major League Baseball and an even more tragic moment for the Detroit Tigers. And I, I remember that game. And I remember the aftermath of that game. And I just asked last segment what the parameters are for success regarding the Detroit Tigers this season. But I have another question that has been asked to me a lot. Actually, two questions. Number one is, do I think that Armando Galarraga's 28-out perfect game will ever be officially overturned? I think it's going to be a while, but yeah, I do. I think at some point, I don't think it'll even happen under Manfred, but at some point the next commissioner will come along and say, you know what, 
we're, we are negating the next at-bat. All you got to do is essentially just remove five pitches from the game, a put-out by, I believe it was Brandon Inge at third base, and I think two defensive indifference calls in which the runner got to third base. You know, take all that away. We're going to give the kid a perfect game. We're going to bring Armando Galarraga back to Comerica Park. We're going to bring Jim Joyce back to Comerica Park. We're going to recreate the final out. Everyone's going to celebrate. We can finally let this kid have his moment in the sun. I do believe that ultimately it will be overturned. It's just going to take a while. But the other question that gets asked, and it was asked to me on Twitter yesterday, is am I still mad at Jim Joyce? Because looking at the responses and the tweets on social media, people are still mad at him. People still hate him. When we did the list of the top 25 most hated figures in all of Detroit sports, he was very high up on that list 12 years later. Am I still angry at Jim Joyce? No. At the time, furious. Absolutely ridiculous. Now, I do think over the last 12 years, I've seen some takes that are just silly to me. I've seen people say that he did that just to kind of make the moment about himself. No. Jim Joyce thought the runner was safe, so he called him safe. But beyond that, I've heard people say that no, it didn't matter. didn't matter how close it was. He should have called him out and gave the guy a perfect game. Uh, no, that's not how it works, okay? If he was safe, you should have called him safe. And I ultimately have gone on to view Jim Joyce in the 12 years since Galarraga's perfectly imperfect game as a tragic figure, quite frankly. Because Jim Joyce, and people are going to hate hearing this, was regarded as one of the best umpires in Major League Baseball throughout his long tenure in the Major Leagues. He was, I believe, voted in Sports Illustrated several years after Galarraga's perfect game as the best umpire in baseball, made the obstruction call in Game 3 of the 2013 World Series. Gutsy call, the right call. Cardinals won that game. Obviously, the Red Sox ended up winning that series, but you know he made the right move there. I believe that he's a guy who made... A horrible mistake. And that's why that moment just makes me sad. It's why the why, why are the Tigers posting like that clip? It's not a happy clip. It's sad. It's like, why don't you just post Poppy's Grand Slam from the 2013 ALCS while you're at it? But beyond that, I appreciate any person who can do something really dumb and immediately say, that's on me. And he was it was immediate. He came out and said, I watched the replay and I was wrong. I screwed it up. I kicked the call. I took a perfect game away from that kid, and I'm never going to live it down. And that is, that's very sad to me because Jim Joyce could cure world hunger, and yet when God decides to turn the lights out on him, he's still going to be the guy that people are going to look at and be like, dude, is that the umpire that blew Galarraga's perfect game? That does make me sad. Now, on the flip side, if we're talking about class, if we're talking about humility, the way that Galarraga conducted himself throughout that entire ordeal, he's going to hold a special place in Tigers fans' hearts forever. Because, I, you know, I try to be honest in all situations. I would not have reacted that way. I would have been as furious as a person can possibly be when I threw a perfect game. I, I achieved something that some of the greatest pitchers of all time have not been able to achieve, and it was taken from me. The way he conducted himself, and 12 years later has continued to conduct himself. I mean, it's almost like, it's almost inhuman the way that he's like, yeah, it's whatever, like, yeah, yeah. They got a perfect game stolen from me, but man, maybe they change it. Maybe they don't just, that's amazing. I mean, I mean the sign of a true professional and a truly good person. But when I look at that game at that moment, my anger is not towards Jim Joyce. My anger in retrospect is toward major league baseball. It was 2010. We were well into the 21st century. 
and the fact that in that year, there was no semblance of an instant replay system in Major League Baseball was a travesty. There have been and will always be bad umpires in Major League Baseball. And there are instances in which games, careers, playoff series have been decided by uh, bad umpiring. Right? The prime example, Don Deckinger, Game 6 of the 1985 World Series, called a runner safe when he was clearly out. Royals walked it off, ended up winning uh, Game 7 the next night. But that was 1985. In 2010, the fact that there was no built-in failsafe was embarrassing. Jim Joyce would be a footnote in history if there was a system in place that allowed that call to be overturned. But sadly, there was not. And it changed the legacy of multiple careers, multiple people, and multiple teams. What organization wouldn't like to say that they had a pitcher who threw a perfect game? That's what bothers me the most because it's so freaking true that baseball has always been the last sport to adapt. And everyone knew, even at the time, everyone knew if you're not going to have a system in place, eventually there's going to be one of those one in a million moments in which a catastrophic event happens. And that catastrophic event just happened to be between Armando Galarraga and Jim Joyce, and it cost the the kid a, a perfect game. I think that Jim Joyce, in the eyes of the Detroit sports world, is very comparable to Steve Bartman with the Cubs and Bill Buckner for the Red Sox, where people are always going to view him as a villain despite the fact that there were other circumstances that probably could have prevented that moment from ever happening. And I truly do hope that one day this thing gets overturned and we can bring Galarraga, obviously, because he's earned it. He was the guy who threw the game. But also bring Jim Joyce back to Comerica Park. And, you know, if he gets booed, he gets booed. And that's fine. You know, it's been 12 years of, of frustration when people watch that that call. But I, I don't know. I, I Maybe I'm just soft. But that stuff, I, I view it as, as a baseball tragedy. That should have never happened. And I believe it's the failure of Major League Baseball that there was no system in place to make sure that that didn't happen. And look, Major League Baseball replay is an imperfect system. There are calls that get overturned where I say, what the hell was that? There's no way that should have been overturned. And there's calls that don't get overturned, which to me are blatant. But for the most part, it's a necessary evil, and I'm glad it's in place. So, yeah, that, that that's kind of my feelings towards the whole thing. I feel like this might be the most controversial, I'll say this, that we've ever had. Because I had some very strong opinions about Musa Diabate and Caleb Houston. Strong opinions about the Tigers, not so much. But I had some strong opinions about this. And don't get me wrong, I understand people's frustrations. I understand the people who view Jim Joyce as one of the all-time great Detroit sports villains. I'm just... It's been 12 years. I'm just not one of those guys. And that, that puts me in the minority. But I'm also curious to see what the fans of this show have to say. I would like to read you know, some, some comments down below on, on this YouTube video how you feel about that situation 12 years later because when that moment happened, I did not expect that 12 years later there would still be just an outpouring of tweets and comments uh, hating on this guy. I mean, people have... I, mean, they, I know they won a World Series, but like the Cubs forgave Steve Bartman. Uh, Bill Buckner got a standing ovation at Fenway, like... You know, it was like 25 years 
after that play happened, but he still got it, and yet Jim Joyce is still one of the big Detroit sports villains. It's sad, and it is tragic, but at the same time, from a sports perspective as a content guy, it's very fascinating. It is one, it's a one-in-a-million thing that happened, and while I wish it didn't happen, it's definitely unique. So that'll do it for today's show. You can follow me on Twitter at Castellani2014. While you're at it, hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. Let's get those watch hours up, up, up. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. Subscribe on those platforms on Apple Podcasts. Give us a nice written review, five-star review, and much appreciated. We will be back here on Monday covering some more Detroit sports news. I think this was a good show. I hope all of you enjoy it. Keep spreading the word. You know, I really want this thing to grow. I'm working hard on it. Producer Matt is absolutely kicking ass with the job he's doing here. So uh, we're going we're gonna to continue to try to grow this thing and create the best product possible. But to the people who have been loyal from the beginning, uh, thank you so much. Uh, you all mean the world to me. Y'all are the best. All right. I, I hope I'm making uh, your time worthwhile. Thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. Have a great weekend. Peace and happiness.